What if your daughter disappeared? Your mother, your son. What if years have passed and you're no closer to finding them? When a person goes missing, their story doesn't stop there. Each week, Missing brings you stories of missing persons and justice sourced from the case file of the nonprofit Private Investigations for the Missing. Listeners say Missing is the most binge-worthy podcast of all time. Search Missing wherever you listen to podcasts. Missing, where mysteries have a mission. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Carthage, Texas is a small town in East Texas known as the gas capital of the United States. According to the town's website, it is the friendliest spot in the world. Situated in Panola County, close to the Louisiana border, Carthage has a rich culture based around gas, music, and Christian values. With a population of around 6,000 people in the summer of 1997, Carthage held all the hallmarks of a cliché small town where everyone knew everyone. In August 1997, the local police received a tip-off from concerned acquaintances and family members of a wealthy widow who had not been seen around town for quite some time. After assisting the missing woman's estranged son in assuming guardianship of the enormous property on the outskirts of town, the sheriff's deputies were able to gain access to the house. Once inside, they could see that the house appeared to have been empty for months, as mail dating back to the previous year had accumulated, and food inside the fridge had been expired since November. After searching all of the rooms in the large estate, the woman's granddaughter noticed that the lid of the chest freezer in the garage had been taped shut, which seemed odd. Cutting the tape and opening the lid, they saw a piece of fabric beneath the packets of frozen food. They peeled back the frost-covered sheet and immediately saw the top of a human head. The person's distinctive reddish-white hair made them easily identifiable. It was the woman they were looking for. 81-year-old Marjorie Nugent. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 57 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Marjorie Midyat was born and raised in Carthage in 1915, the eldest daughter of three in a well-known family headed by her father, Spencer Midyat, who ran a grocery. Throughout her youth, Marjorie felt as though Carthage was too small for her big dreams. She had very little time for the locals who had suddenly become rich when a gas field was discovered in the 1930s. Marjorie left Carthage behind and moved to Louisiana to attend Louisiana Tech, where she met electrical engineering graduate Rod Nugent. Marjorie and Rod were eventually married and had one son, Rod Jr. The family moved around wherever Rod's career as an independent oil merchant took them, and they made a fortune. 
1989, Rod and Marjorie moved back to her hometown of Carthage after Rod bought a controlling share in the First National Bank of Carthage. They built a 6,000-square-foot home out of Austin Stone on several acres of land just outside of town. Those who knew Marjorie were far from pleased to hear of her return, and those who thought she might have softened after her years outside Carthage were swiftly corrected when they crossed her path. Marjorie had cut contact with her own sisters after an inheritance dispute following her father's death in the 1980s. Even when she returned to town, the relationship with her family remained sour. One neighbor said that Marjorie didn't want to mix with people. Others explained she was unfriendly and tight with her money. One resident is quoted in a Texas Monthly article as saying of Marjorie, if she held her nose any higher, she would have drowned in a rainstorm. Marjorie's nephew, Joe Rhodes, wrote a New York Times article about his aunt's death in which he recalls how his mother, Marjorie's younger sister, said, She was so demanding. If you did something she didn't think was up to her standards, she'd tear it up and make you do it again. I think she hated everybody. I don't know why she was so ugly to so many people, but she was. Marjorie's sister also admitted to being scared of her, a sentiment shared by quite a few people in Carthage. By the time Marjorie was widowed in 1990, she had become estranged from her only child, who was, by that point, a successful pathologist with his own family. Rod Sr. died following complications during surgery at the age of 76, and his multi-million dollar estate was left to Marjorie. Although the funeral had low attendance, the local funeral director and lay preacher, Bernie Tita, ensured that the service was beautiful. Bernie was a 33-year-old mortician and musical theater enthusiast who worked for Hawthorne Funeral Homes since 1985. As well as being a talented funeral director and capable eulogist, Bernie could sing, and he had sung at most of the funerals in town. Raised by a single father after his mother's tragic death in a car accident when he was just three years old, Bernie acquired his passion and talent for music from his father, who was a music professor and choir director. After his father's death while he was still in high school, Bernie took a part-time job at a local funeral home before moving to Lake Charles, Louisiana, to attempt to set up his own floristry business. The flower shop closed down, and Bernie returned to what he knew best. His younger sister recalled, I really think that because of the loneliness he went through in his childhood, Bernie made it his calling to serve people in times of their own need. He said a long time ago that he was meant to take care of others, and I think that's why the funeral business appealed to him. He was new to Carthage when he arrived in 1985, but he won over the residents in no time with his friendly demeanor and warm smile. Bernie was a keen member of the First United Methodist Church, a soloist tenor in the choir, and a beloved Sunday school teacher. He was active in the community and always seemed willing to lend a hand to anyone in need. Don Lipsy, who had hired Bernie to work at the Hawthorne Funeral Home, is quoted in Texas Monthly speaking about Bernie. He said, He was probably the most qualified young man I have ever seen. He waited well on the families. He would sing solos behind the screen during the funeral, and he was a damn good embalmer. He had a talent of making the hair of the deceased look really natural. 
Bernie stood out in the conservative town. Juxtaposed next to the boot-wearing, rough-cut man in Carthage was the plump and colorful choir tenor who seemed to be loved by older women. Don Lipsy recalled, There's little old ladies here in town that would fight over him. I'm not kidding you. But Bernie only ever seemed to have platonic relationships, as Don Lipsy said. He wasn't bad-looking, and there were numerous girls in the community who would have dated him. But he showed no romantic interest in women his age at all. I think some of the men during their coffee shop talks would insinuate that Bernie was a little light in the loafers. While there were rumors about Bernie's sexuality, he was a well-liked, God-fearing, and upstanding citizen, which trumped any prejudicial thoughts people may have otherwise had about his private life. Bernie was hard to dislike, even for the supposedly cold and impossible to please Marjorie Nugent. During her husband's funeral service, Marjorie had the full attention of Bernie Tita, who attended to her every need and even gave her his coat when she felt a chill at the graveside. This wasn't unusual behavior for Bernie. As high school counselor and fellow church member Paula Carter said, he brought a lot of compassion to Carthage. He was very quick to shake your hand and ask how you were doing. And if you told him you weren't doing too well, he would drop everything to talk to you and see what he could do. His kindness extended past the point of the dirt being thrown on the coffin of his latest client. He would check in on the bereaved in the days and weeks following their loss. Marjorie wasn't used to the attention or affection the young funeral director showed her. After he continued to check in on her and offer to help around her enormous estate, people noticed a visible change in the usually reserved older woman. Marjorie's stockbroker and close associate of her late husband, Lloyd Tiller, remarked, Bernie made her smile. He gave her plenty of attention. He was an excellent conversationalist. It was like he made her feel young again. Marjorie and Bernie became friends. He would take her to see the latest productions at the local theater group he directed, or for lunch in one of her favorite restaurants. Marjorie seemed to loosen her purse strings, something she was said to have had great issue with in the past. Soon, Bernie was wearing the late Mr. Nugent's $12,000 Rolex that Marjorie had gifted him. And Marjorie, who had been steady on her feet despite her age, suddenly seemed to need to hold Bernie's hand for support when they walked through town. Bernie was used to living modestly, having become the man of the house at the age of 15. He had always worked hard to earn money, and willingly gave much of it away to charities and neighbors who had fallen on hard times. He lived in a small house behind the funeral parlor and drove a financed Lincoln Continental, but according to those who knew him, Bernie would put his hand in his pocket at the first sign of someone else's struggle. A year after Marjorie became a widow, she made Bernie a signatory on her bank check so he could handle her bills. Marjorie's yearly income exceeded close to half a million dollars. She had investments that continued to grow her wealth, so money was no obstacle for her. And, with her family estranged, she changed her will to name Bernie as the sole beneficiary of her hefty estate. Bernie continued working in the funeral home until 1993, when Marjorie asked him to work for her full-time instead. His duties included accompanying her on trips and helping to manage her estate. In return, he received a much higher income than he was used to. Don Lipsy, his employer at Hawthorne's, advised him against working for Marjorie full-time because it was clear that she already had Bernie at her beck and call. But Bernie told Don, 
Deep down inside, she's a sweet woman. We will get along just fine. The odd couple did get along fine. They traveled the globe together, taking weekend trips to see Broadway shows, cruising to the UK on the Queen Mary, and flying first class to see the pyramids in Egypt. When he wasn't making Marjorie's breakfast or managing her finances, Bernie took flying lessons and later purchased a small plane. Despite his busy schedule, Bernie still managed to find time to sing at church services and direct theater shows in town. After almost five years as Marjorie's companion, her bristly nature began to grate on the seemingly patient Bernie. He told his sister that Marjorie was controlling and wearing him down. His sister later commented, I asked him why he didn't quit, and he gave me this tortured look and said, Because I'm her only friend. I have to stay because I'm the only one she has. Bernie's newfound benefactor had helped him continue to exhibit acts of profound generosity for those in the community. He loaned money to people to help them buy a car, gave one couple the down payment for their first home, sponsored scholarships for Panola College students, donated $100,000 toward a new church building, and even paid for two local businesses to stay open. While the effects of Marjorie's money were seen all over the town, the red-haired 81-year-old had not been seen for months. The first to take notice of Marjorie's disappearance was Lloyd Tiller, her stockbroker. Bernie told him that Marjorie was unwell each time he had called to speak to her. But when February 1997 rolled around, Lloyd went to the house himself to try and discuss investments with one of his wealthiest clients. There was no answer, and Bernie said she was showing signs of Alzheimer's and couldn't speak to anyone. Six months later, after numerous attempts to contact Marjorie had failed, Lloyd reached out to the district attorney's office on August 10, 1997. The authorities had already received an anonymous call from a woman who was concerned about the elusive Marjorie Nugent, so the sheriff's department agreed to look into it. Bernie was singing at a wedding in Las Vegas when the deputies first reached out to him. He told them that Marjorie had suffered a stroke and was being cared for at a hospital in Temple, Texas. Bernie said that Marjorie had been admitted under a fake name to prevent her family from trying to meddle in her affairs or put her in a nursing home. This seemed plausible as her son, Dr. Rod Nugent Jr., and his daughters had filed a civil suit against Marjorie to stake a claim on an inheritance from Rod Sr.'s estate. Bernie told the deputies that he would call on them as soon as he was back in Carthage, but the days went by and Bernie didn't call. Deputies wanted to search Marjorie's house. Still, they needed a relative to assume guardianship of the property before they could go inside, so they called Rod Jr. They also had another reason they wanted to speak with Rod. Bernie had been questioned a second time. He told the police he believed Marjorie had been kidnapped months earlier, and he suspected Rod Jr. was behind it. They called Marjorie's son, who traveled from Amarillo with his eldest daughter, Alexandria. Jr. was not on good terms with his mother, and he didn't have a key, so the deputies had to force entry to the property. After a fruitless search of the home, Alexandria noticed tape on the lid of the chest freezer, which prompted a deputy to open it. Beneath the frozen food and a white sheet, they saw Marjorie Nugent's distinctive red hair. 
Panola County District Attorney Danny Buck Davidson spoke with reporters when news of the grim discovery broke. He said, She was sort of scrunched up in the freezer. She wasn't a big woman. She was wrapped up in a blood-stained blanket. Marjorie's body was frozen inside the freezer, so the entire unit had to be plugged into a generator and transported to Dallas for an autopsy, which couldn't begin for two days because her body had to thaw. In the meantime, sheriff's deputies quickly located Bernie. He was taking a Little League team out for a celebratory meal when he was called aside and asked to come to the station. After the interview began, Bernie cracked and informed the investigators he knew what had happened to Marjorie Nugent. Bernie told the police, I know I've done wrong and have to pay for my sins. In the confession statement, Bernie says that he had been thinking about killing Marjorie with a baseball bat to the head for months, but he was worried about making her suffer. He said, She had become very hateful. She had become very possessive over my life. She was now evil and wicked, but I still cared for her. I went to her house on November the 19th, 1996, and made coffee at approximately 7 a.m. I then went home to take a shower. I returned at approximately 10 a.m. I was there alone with her. Marjorie had a rifle in the freezer closet. She kept it there to shoot crows and blackbirds in the yard. She was leading out of the house from the hallway to the garage. I had moved the rifle into the bathroom near the garage. She had walked out to the garage towards my car. I took the rifle and I shot Marjorie in the back. She fell face first. Marjorie was still breathing heavily, so I shot her again. I may have shot her one more time. I didn't want her to suffer. I then dragged Marjorie by the feet from the garage to the freezer. I had taken the food from the freezer. I placed her into the freezer and covered her with a Land's End brand white sheet. I then covered her with the food. I took a water hose and washed the blood from the garage. I swept up the bullets along with some leaves and threw them away. I put two pieces of masking tape on the freezer door. Bernie and Marjorie were supposed to be going to Longview for lunch that afternoon. He explained that he didn't even realize that he had shot her until it was too late. The police found the 22 caliber rifle in the garage. Once Marjorie's remains had thawed out, the medical examiner confirmed that she had been shot in the back four times. Her body had been hidden in the freezer for nine months while Bernie was able to use his position as a signatory to access Marjorie's money. Once the news broke that the notoriously pleasant and helpful Bernie had been arrested for the murder of his 81-year-old companion, the residents of Carthage were stunned. One told the Houston Chronicle, We're shocked that Mrs. Nugent was killed, and we're shocked at who supposedly did it. He had a very sweet tenor, and he sang barbershop quartets. Jody Register, who sold one of the local businesses to Bernie, said, A lot of us still can't believe it. If I had made a list of people I knew were going to heaven, Bernie would be first on that list. I didn't think there was a better-liked man in this town. He's as big as a teddy bear and just as soft-hearted as he could be. The support for the confessed killer was such that the prosecutor, Buck Davidson, had to adjust the charges to ensure Bernie's loyal supporters did not post his bail. Davidson told the Houston Chronicle, we originally had him on a $1.7 million bond on the murder charge alone. Then we found out a bunch of these little old ladies were getting together to make his bond. 
and we added the theft charge and upped it to $2.7 million. Bernie was suspected of taking between $300,000 and over $1 million from Marjorie's bank accounts and using the money to support local businesses and buy cars and even homes for people. If he spent any of the money on himself, it was not as obvious as the money he used to better the community, which was something locals held on to when Bernie was faced with life behind bars. Buck Davidson said, When this first happened, the sentiments in town weren't for the dead lady. They were exactly backward. They were for him. He had a way with little old ladies that had money. I'm getting information that he might have recently begun to show interest in another lady here that was wealthy, an elderly lady. That should have been a sign that Mrs. Nugent was gone. The most talked about part of the case didn't seem to be the fact that an elderly woman had been shot and had her body placed in a freezer for months. It was the fact that deputies found homemade pornographic videotapes in Bernie's home. They featured him and a number of men from Carthage. Some locals even made their way to the Panola County Jail to visit Bernie, who had a single cell away from the other prisoners at his own request. He kept busy in jail by cooking, cleaning, and preaching to the other inmates. Describing the prisoner's routine, Sheriff Jack Ellett said, he gets up every morning about 5, 5.30 and cooks breakfast for anywhere from 40 to 45 people, and he cooks and cleans all day before going back to his cell. While Bernie had a considerable amount of public support, Marjorie Nugent's son, Dr. Rod Nugent, filed a wrongful death suit against Bernie, alleging that he had killed Marjorie after she discovered he had been stealing from her. Dr. Nugent stated, He was a con man doing a confidence job. It appears he killed my mother because he didn't want to get caught. He said he had to kill her because she'd gotten mean. Well then, why didn't he just put one foot in front of the other and walk away? I'll tell you why. Greed. Rod Jr. explained that his mother completely changed after she began spending time with Bernie. She had been a woman who had saved her entire life and never went on trips or made lavish purchases like she did in the final years of her life. Marjorie's younger sister, Meryl Rhodes, said it seemed to be good for Marjorie to travel, although they only lived a few miles apart, they did not speak. Meryl remarked, The one picture that I saw shows her with Bernie. I think they were in Hong Kong. She looked so happy. I didn't interfere because I thought she was happy. I thought she deserved a friend. Marjorie's son had been conducting his own investigation after his mother's murder was uncovered. He claimed that within 90 days of his father's death, money began going out with Bernie. Dr. Nugent said, The amount of money that went to him? I can document $3.8 million. Rod Jr. hadn't seen his mother since 1994, and the last time he visited with his daughters, he said that Marjorie had acted like she didn't know them. When Rod Jr. and his daughters tried to access a trust fund set up for them after Rod Sr.'s death, they got no response. Eventually, Marjorie was almost sued by her granddaughters before she transferred the trust to another bank. While the DA agreed that it seemed likely that Marjorie had realized Bernie was taking her money before she was killed, he said that her family hadn't been there to support her. Buck Davidson remarked, She was in a freezer for nine months. This went through Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, her birthday, and Mother's Day. Yet no one came to find out what was wrong. 
Rod Jr. defended his family and said, By the time of her death, it was like she didn't know her family. It wasn't because we didn't try. With the help of his friends, Bernie hired defense attorney Clifton Scrappy Holmes as his lawyer, who had very little to do in terms of changing the public opinion of his client. His adversary, Buck Davidson, told Texas Monthly, A couple of people have said to me that Bernie deserves to fry for what he's done, but I know there are a lot more who just want the whole thing to go away. They keep asking me if there aren't some extenuating circumstances that would help his defense. And I think, good God almighty, do people really think Mrs. Nugent was so mean to him that he had to shoot her in the back in self-defense? The district attorney felt they would never be able to find an unbiased jury to try Bernie and Carthage. Locals had told him as much whenever they saw him in town. City Councilman Olin Joffrian said, From the day that deep freeze was opened, you haven't been able to find anyone in town saying, Poor Mrs. Nugent. People are saying, Poor Bernie. As Buck Davidson put it, How many people had he helped making funeral arrangements? How many people had he sung for at their weddings? The big question is how they would decide in the matter of probation. He is eligible. This is his first offense. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The trial was moved to San Augustine and finally began in February 1999. Opening the trial, Prosecutor Davidson told the jurors it was a simple murder case. He said, The central theme you'll see is greed and love of money, the root of all evil. The state's case was that Bernie had conned his way into the elderly widow's life and used her for her money. They had his confession, his prints on the murder weapon, and the bank records that showed he had been taking money from Marjorie before and after her death. Bernie's defense attorney, Scrappy Holmes, said that his client hadn't killed for money. He had snapped after enormous pressure from Marjorie Nugent. Holmes told the jury, From the evidence, you're going to find that Tita killed Mrs. Nugent. But the evidence doesn't stop there. You will find all kinds of reasons, explanations for that conduct. But you're not going to find from the evidence that the conduct was out of greed. The defense attorney claimed that Marjorie would make Bernie shave her legs, clip her toenails, and wait on her hand and foot until he snapped. Bernie had to go over to Marjorie's house each day from the moment she woke up. Holmes said, if he was 10 minutes late in coming to make her coffee in the morning, she would call around to his friends hunting him down. Holmes spoke about the day of the murder and the day of Bernie's arrest, saying, on the 19th day of November, Bernie Tito was like a kite without a string. He was concerned, wounded, upset, frightened. On the 18th day of August, it all fell in. 
Witnesses testified about the odd relationship between Marjorie and Bernie and Bernie's behavior in the months after November 1996, when it was alleged that Marjorie had been killed. Through their testimony, it emerged that Bernie told varying stories about Marjorie's whereabouts and welfare. All the while, he knew where she truly was, in a chest freezer in her garage. During the closing arguments, Buck Davidson wrapped up the prosecution's case by telling the jury, From this evidence, you can find this defendant was a liar, coward, and backshooter. This defendant is a cold, calculating, evil actor. He's convincing. He fooled an entire town for nine months. The jury had been shown a video of Marjorie's frozen corpse being lifted out of the freezer in the days after her body was discovered. Two of the jurors screamed in horror, leading the defense to call for a mistrial, but the damage was done. When Scrappy Holmes delivered the defense's closing arguments, he argued that the state were trying to swap the jury's emotions in order to secure a verdict against Bernie. Holmes told the court, One reason was that it makes you feel that Bernie is a monster, a monster, through and through an evil person and not a human being. One witness said that Bernie was an angel with kids. You can't fight that. So what do they do? Bring on the innuendo. They try to picture us using a technicality to slip things through. Slip Bernie Tita out of the door. I stood up in opening statements and said that Bernie killed her. It's not to prove something that's obvious. The obvious was there. Bernie Tita admitted it. But it's to stampede your judgment, to view Bernie Tita as something other than a fellow human being. Bernie Tita knows, recognizes today, yesterday, last year, on the 19th of November, 1996, and every waking second since, his responsibility for Marjorie Nugent's death. Bernie Tita knows what your sure verdict will be. The jury returned with a verdict the following day. Bernie sat expressionless when the verdict was delivered. He was found guilty of murder. After the verdict was delivered, the DA, Buck Davidson, commented on his ideal sentence ahead of the punishment phase of the trial. Davidson said, I'd like to put him in the freezer for nine months. That would give us time to decide what to do with him. Marjorie's granddaughter, Shanna Nugent, said after the verdict, We hope he gets 99 years. We know they will try to pull the focus away from Bernie, though, and place it on our grandmother. Bernie tearfully took to the witness stand during the punishment phase and spoke about how much he regretted killing Marjorie. He told the court that his life had become a prison to some degree after he befriended Marjorie Nugent following her husband's funeral in 1990. After three years, he had been persuaded to leave his job at the funeral home in order to work for Marjorie. Bernie said, She told me I would have more free time, and I liked that idea but I found I didn't have any free time at all. He described a typical morning as Marjorie's personal valet and went on to say, I would go over and make coffee early in the morning between 7 and 7.30. I picked out the clothes she would wear. I helped with the laundry. I trimmed her toenails. I pulled the long hairs out of her chin. I combed her hair. I pulled on her shoes. I did just about anything you could imagine. Whenever he wasn't with Marjorie, she would page him constantly and leave numerous messages waiting for him on his answering machine. At one point, when Marjorie became too overbearing, Bernie told her that he couldn't be friends with her anymore. He attempted to drive out of the driveway, but Marjorie used the remote control to shut the gate before he got there. 
and he simply went on being her friend. He later said in an interview, I brought her back everything she had given to me. I gave her her garage door opener back, and I said, here, I can't handle this anymore. She was crying, and I got in the car. It was midnight, and I drove to the gate. By the time I got to the gate, she had locked that gate on me. She wouldn't let me out, so I had to go back down to the house and talk to her again. She was crying, don't leave me. You can't leave me. You're my only friend. He was asked about the first-class trips they had taken abroad and how Marjorie had bankrolled Bernie's lifestyle for years and continued to do so for nine months after she was shot in the back. Bernie's defense attorney told the jurors who would decide Bernie's fate. This was an absolute aberration. After only one witness, they have the unmitigated gall to stand up here and call him evil. There's not even a suggestion of premeditation in this case. If they had other witnesses who thought Bernie Tito was bad, you can rest assured they would have put him or her on the stand. They promised you greed. They promised evil. But what they brought through their evidence was that Bernie Tito was a good man. Remember what a witness said. He was an angel with the kids. D.A. Davidson later responded and remarked, He was an angel, all right. He was an angel of death. The same jury who had convicted Bernie of murder then decided what punishment he would face. He was sentenced to the maximum of life in prison with a minimum of 30 years and a $10,000 fine. Almost immediately after being sentenced to life in prison, Bernie's lawyer began appealing against his sentence on the basis that expert testimony from a psychologist about Bernie's state of mind had not been admitted into evidence. Appeals in 1998... 2000 and 2002 were dismissed. But in 2011, there was renewed interest in the case when filmmaker Richard Linkletter made a movie titled Bernie, with actor Jack Black playing the leading role. Bernie was interviewed in the Telford Unit State Prison by Longview News Journal reporter Ryan C. Perry in early 2012, where the convicted killer spoke candidly about his crime and his complex companionship with the woman he shot in the back four times. Bernie had been behind bars since his arrest in 1997, and in the state prison, he sang in the choir and did Bible reading. He also shared his commissary from supporters in Carthage with prisoners who had no one to put money on their books. Bernie told Perry, I did something horrible, and I regret that every day for the rest of my life. If they gave me 3,000 years in here, they could never take that away from me. Margie comes and talks to me all the time at night when I'm asleep, and I'm telling you, I have to live with this for the rest of my life. Bernie said that he knew Marjorie and her husband Rod, and he thought that Rod's more personable demeanor stabilized his wife's abruptness. But after Rod died in 1990, Marjorie was utterly alone. Bernie recalled, She had her quirks and her ways and her attitudes. But when we were around other people, it was a berating kind of thing. She really let loose on some things that were not appropriate. She would be very demanding of my life as time went on from until 1996. It was really bad. It got worse and worse and worse. I couldn't have any friends. I had to go from my house to her house in the morning to fix her coffee, talk about her clothes, do everything. I couldn't have a life. That's why she wanted me to leave the funeral home. 
During the day, she would page me 40 or 50 times if I didn't answer her page, and I would be in the middle of a funeral or something like that. It was really bad. Bernie claimed it had been Marjorie who taught him how to shoot the twenty-two caliber rifle he ultimately turned against her. She was tired of armadillos tearing up her garden, so she would sit with Bernie on the porch and shoot the animals she considered pests. After years of being pushed around, Bernie said that he snapped in November 1996 and aimed the rifle at the 81-year-old's back as she walked toward his car to go out for lunch. Bernie stated, It was like I stepped out of myself for just a minute. I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody. Thinking about how I thought in that moment, I can't even go back to it. I don't know what even caused that. It's hard to describe because it was just so weird. Bernie claimed that he panicked when he saw Marjorie lying on the floor and said she deserved a proper burial, so he decided to store her body. Being in the funeral business, you keep a body cool. You keep it cold. You tend to it later on, and that's what I did. I took out some food from that freezer room, right off the door that goes into the house. I took her in there and laid her in the freezer and thought, I'll tend to this later. I didn't know what to do. I thought... I'll just leave her here for a while, and then I'll think of something. Bernie said that very few people asked or cared about where Marjorie was, so he was able to put the murder to the back of his mind and carry on as normal for the next nine months. When his crime was eventually uncovered, Bernie said he felt relieved as though a weight had been lifted off of his shoulders. But after 15 years in prison, he was desperate to go home. With the release of the movie Bernie, the support for Bernie Tita increased, and a new defense attorney, Jody Calloway Cole, contacted the director, Richard Linkletter, and asked to review the court transcripts. Attorney Cole decided to petition the case to the appeals court, citing new evidence that was not addressed in the 1999 trial. In January 2014, a writ was submitted that argued that Bernie had been the victim of childhood sexual abuse perpetrated by an uncle, something that culminated into a violent outburst when he experienced what he perceived to be an abusive relationship with Marjorie Nugent years later. Clinical psychiatry professor Dr. Richard Peskoff examined Bernie and wrote in a report, Like waves of the ocean beating on the rocks, Tita's coping skills were ultimately erased leading to his inability to suppress these emotions and resulting in his outburst of aggression. Dr. Pesikoff noted that Marjorie allegedly made Bernie shave her legs while she was undressed and massage her back with a vibrator. She also caused problems with a gardener who Bernie was having a sexual relationship with. Psychiatrist Dr. Edward Grippen testified that Bernie suffered from a dissociative episode when he killed Marjorie. Dr. Grippen said, In my opinion, he reacted on an impulse. They had an unusual and rather toxic relationship. For all the good there was with it, there was a certain amount of abuse and control and possessiveness. Dr. Grippen had been the state's expert, and he agreed with Dr. Pesikoff after reviewing the evidence that Bernie had a sudden loss of control and posed no ongoing threat to others. 
There was also a suggestion that Bernie had been coerced into confessing after being threatened with the release of the videotapes found in his home, videotapes portraying him engaging in sexual acts with some of the prominent members of Carthage society. After hearing arguments that Bernie had acted with sudden passion after a history of abusive situations, the court ordered a new sentencing phase. Bernie Tito was released on bail after 17 years in May 2014. The conditions of his personal recognizance bond were that he maintained employment, submitted to random drug testing, did not have contact with the victim's family, and did not possess a firearm. He had to live in a designated residence which happened to be the residence of the film director, Richard Linkletter. The movie stars from the film based on Bernie's crime, including Jack Black and Matthew McConaughey, had publicly supported Bernie, and it seemed that the original prosecutor, Buck Davidson, had changed his mind too. After hearing the new evidence, Davidson said that the appropriate conviction would have been second-degree murder, sentence of 20 years would have been appropriate. Davidson said, Therefore, I am agreeable to shortening his sentence to be time served. Speaking with the Houston Chronicle after Bernie was released, Buck Davidson said, I think I might have put 80 years on Bernie that he didn't deserve. We're supposed to do the right thing. You should never be afraid to follow the truth wherever it leads you. Remember, that's my deal. Justice, not prosecuting. Marjorie Nugent's family were far from pleased about Bernie's release. Her granddaughter, Shanna, wrote a piece for the Texas Tribune blasting the movie based on her grandmother's murder and asked, Do you remember in the movie Bernie, where Bernie Tita, played by Jack Black, shot the cantankerous Marjorie Nugent in the back? And how Marjorie writhed on the ground, wounded and bleeding, but not dead? So Bernie shot her three more times at point-blank range. If you don't, it's because it didn't happen like that in the movie. Her murderer wasn't the chubby, kindly Jack Black. Is the wave of sympathy for the man or the character? The influence of Hollywood storytelling on the Texas judicial system should concern all of us. It sets a damaging precedent. Criminals deserve punishment prescribed by our judicial system, not by Hollywood. When Bernie's original sentence was erased in November of 2014, the Nugent family were devastated. They asked that the new punishment trial be held by the Texas Attorney General instead of the Panola County DA, Buck Davidson, because he had publicly admitted that he would be happy with Bernie serving a shorter sentence. The family's legal representative, Ryan Gravatt, wrote a statement which read, in part, Danny Buck Davidson is starstruck, and he needs to recuse himself. A simple internet search shows him arm in arm with the Hollywood celebrities who have been paying attorneys for two years to get Tita a new trial. In light of this, does Davidson really represent the views of Panola County residents? No, he does not. In March 2015, D.A. Davidson did recuse himself from the case, stating that he had become a witness and could no longer prosecute as a result. As the sentencing phase loomed, Bernie's A-list supporters, Richard Linklater, Jack Black, and Matthew McConaughey, held a fundraiser to raise money for Bernie's defense fund. The support for Bernie and Carthage had waned, as many of those most loyal to him had been older women, hoping he would be free to sing at their funerals. The residents were now angry that their little town had become synonymous with a sympathetic murderer, 
who shot a defenseless 81-year-old in the back as she bent over to pet her dog. The new sentencing trial began in April 2016 in Henderson before Judge Diane DeVosto and a jury of 11 women and one man. Once again, the prosecution said that Bernie had killed Marjorie Nugent out of greed because he had become accustomed to living large on the widow's tab. Bernie's attorney, Mike DeGarren, told the jury that Bernie had a tough childhood. His mother died when he was an infant. His alcoholic father died when he was a teenager. He spent years being sexually abused by an uncle, and Bernie was a gay man living in a conservative area. DeGarren said, What is it about her personality that would cause that kind of fracture, except that there was mental abuse going on? Firearms experts testified that the bullet wound seen on Marjorie's remains indicated that she had been shot at close range as she lay face down in the garage. Evidence was presented that showed it was possible that Bernie had been forging bank statements to cover up the money he was taking from Marjorie's accounts before her death. One witness testified that $3.6 million had been moved from Marjorie's accounts to accounts attached to Bernie's name between 1991 and 1997. The state contended that Marjorie had been duped into believing that Bernie was investing money for her when he was, in fact, using the money himself. His expenditures included church donations, college funds, an aviation company with four aircrafts, jet skis, cars, homes, and local businesses. The defense suggested that Marjorie had used Bernie as a pawn to allow her to access the money set aside in a trust by her late husband by moving money around in order to cut her estranged son and grandchildren out of their inheritance. They had been in a legal battle at the time of her death. There was testimony about the alleged sexual abuse perpetrated by Bernie's uncle, Elmer Doucette. One of Doucette's victims, Todd Hine, had made contact with Bernie's attorney and disclosed the abuse he had suffered. Eventually, Bernie admitted that he too had been a victim. The statute of limitations meant that Doucette could not be convicted for his alleged crimes against young boys, but there were a number of victims who filed charges against him. Doucette had admitted to an investigator that he had received oral sex from his nephew when Bernie was a minor. New evidence that a book on recovering from childhood sexual abuse was found in Bernie's home in 1997 was also introduced. The defense argued that the abuse had contributed to a dissociative episode they contended that Bernie suffered when he shot and killed Marjorie Nugent in 1996. Psychiatrist Dr. Richard Pesikoff testified about the same and said, This was not an event in and of itself. It was a process that built. It went on and on. It doesn't excuse it. Journalist Joe Rhodes, who wrote an article for the New York Times Magazine titled, How My Aunt Marge Ended Up in the Deep Freezer, testified about his experience with Marjorie Nugent. He said that as a teenager, he stayed with Marjorie, and when he refused to remove a wasp's nest with his bare hands, she turned violent. Rhodes recalled, She ended up chasing me around the yard with garden shears, and she eventually locked me in the bedroom and told me I couldn't come out till I did what she told me. Turned out, I was in there two days. After all of the testimony was delivered in the 13-day trial, the case went to the jury. The jury had two options to consider, a sentence of five years to life 
or if they believed that Bernie had shot Marjorie in sudden passion, his sentence would be a maximum of 20 years. After four and a half hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a decision. They recommended a sentence of 99 years to life in prison. Marjorie's granddaughter, Shanna, delivered a victim impact statement in the courtroom. After two years on parole, Bernie Tito was taken back to prison to finish serving the second life sentence he had been given. The theft charges against Bernie were dismissed, and his attorneys filed a motion for another sentencing trial. They stated that Bernie was coerced into signing the confession when Panola County Sheriff's investigators threatened to make the sex tapes found in his home public. The appellate document also refers to outbursts made by the Nugent family during the sentencing trial, prejudicial comments made by someone who had been a member of the grand jury that indicted him, and an agreement between his attorneys and DA Buck Davidson about Bernie being released on time served. The appeals court affirmed the 90-year sentence and dismissed the appeal. Shannon Nugent praised the dismissal and said, Today, truth and justice were upheld, and a Hollywood myth was finally proved to be what it was, a myth. Two juries heard the evidence in two separate cities 17 years apart, and both reached the same conclusion. Bernie Tito will be eligible for parole in 2029. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.